Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with biographers about their work. This time, we interview award-winning South African author Johnny Steinberg. His latest book, Winnie and Nelson Mandela, Portrait of a Marriage, was published in May of this year by Knopf. I began my interview with Johnny Steinberg by asking him how the Mandela's marriage embodied the history of the Black struggle for freedom in South Africa. Winnie and Nelson very self-consciously wanted their marriage to embody South Africa's struggle for freedom. And in, in, in writing the story of their marriage, it, it, almost by definition, writing the country's story. I, I think their marriage really, in a strange way, does embody South African history, but not in ways that they expected or were in control of, which makes it an interesting story to write. Absolutely. What made both Winnie Mandela and Nelson Mandela significant contributors to history? You know, I think from the moment they met in the late 1950s, they understood, and and maybe not in an entirely conscious way, maybe just in an intuitive way, that what they looked like together was very powerful. A very beautiful, very stylish Black couple in the heart of apartheid South Africa emanates its political meaning. And they understood that celebrity had substance, that it was politically powerful, and a lot of people around them didn't. There, There was really no such thing as political celebrity in South Africa at the time. They really invented it. The Black press at the time you know, they'd make celebrities out of stage actresses and boxers and soccer players, but not really political figures. They took celebrity into politics and they understood its enormous power and its seriousness. So, you know, when Nelson went to prison and Winnie was a beautiful woman and the mother of two left single, they understood that that story itself could carry a struggle for freedom. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the idea that you have this glamorous, beautiful couple whose life is now a tragedy because they've been separated. The idea that when they're reunited, their country will be free became an extraordinary story. And and they understood it intuitively. And thankfully, a lot of people around them in the ANC and the anti-apartheid movement understood it too, and really elevated them into a, a symbol of a struggle for freedom. Now, for anyone who might not fully understand what the apartheid system was all about, how would you describe it? Well, one way to describe it is that it's, in a strange way, the opposite of slavery. You know, slavery tends towards genocide. Mm-hmm. Um, apartheid was about reproducing black labor. It was about wanting black people to survive in order to work. And therefore, you know, it had a healthcare system for black people. It had an education system for black people. It, it had every, everything required to reproduce the population, but deeply, deeply inadequately. It wanted people to survive, but as second, third class citizens who are good for their labor. Mm. There were many contradictions inside that. You know, apartheid was also a capitalist system and wanted black people to be consumers. And consumers need to have money. Consumers need to have style. They need to have houses and cars. So there were different forces pulling apartheid in different directions. And eventually the contradictions just dragged the whole thing apart. You know, by the end, few white people believed it anymore and were living in a very strange state of denial. Would you say that the system was similar to the American system of legal Jim Crow segregation and discrimination, except maybe on steroids? 
Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Although parts of the American system are also on steroids. But <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the parallels are striking. Obviously, the major, major difference is that black people in South Africa were easily the majority. And the fact that a minority was denying political rights to a large majority over the generations was the stark difference. Okay. Where in South Africa did you grow up? I grew up in, in Johannesburg. And as a child, how much did you know about the Mandela's Uh, the ANC and the anti-apartheid movement? I was born in 1970. So by the time I was in my teens, we were in the 80s and Black South Africa was on fire. There was a a national insurrection. I lived in a staggeringly all-white world. I went to a school where the only Black people who were permitted to enter were the cleaning staff. Mm. I didn't meet a black person with a university education until I was 18, 19 years old. I was politicized by a couple of school teachers and an older sister who was a student activist. But it was a weirdly discombobulated experience because in my mind, through this politicization, I understood, you know, that apartheid was abhorrent. You know, I regarded myself as as a radical, as a Marxist. And yet I lived in an all-white world. I never connected properly with black people. So it was a as strange a childhood and, and, and youth as you could imagine it to be. And so in your book, you indicate that you were 19 when Mandela was released from prison. And, you know, of course, the government unbanned the ANC and Winnie and Nelson reunited. How did the nationwide reaction to his release affect you? Well, by that stage, I was in the thick of student politics. I, I was in an organization called the National Union of South African Students. It was very much part of the anti-apartheid movement. And on the day Mandela was released, I joined several thousand other students and streamed into the streets of Johannesburg to celebrate. We then got in a car and went to Soweto, as close to his home as we could. And there were literally tens of thousands of people on the streets. There was a spurs of celebration, which was magical. It was it was not a real day. It was a very, very strange day. And reality came when when the riot police came onto the streets and tried to sweep them clean. And then there were there were batons and tear gas and blood on the streets. And we, we realized again which country we were living in. Would you say that that was when your fascination for the Mandelas began? Well, before Nelson was released, when he was, was around in, in the outskirts of my life, I was a student at Wits University, so was she. We were, in fact, in the same political studies first year class. I would see her in tutorials. Really? You know, she, would, she would come in with her bodyguards to tutorials. <laughs> wow. Um, she spoke on campus quite often while I was a student there. So I, on several occasions, was in a packed hall when she spoke. Usually the student movement would invite her in when there was going to be a confrontation with the police. She she and a youth leader called Peter Macabo were two people who could rarely whip up a crowd. And you wanted her in situations like that. So I went to university in 1988. So 88, 89, 90, she was around. She was very much a, a figure who was there in my world. In separate chapters that are richly detailed, you get into Winnie's and Nelson's family background, as well as their educational upbringing and the Methodist religion that they both subscribe to. So what research methods did you have to flesh out to get the details of their lineage and early influences? In Winnie's case, it was very much uh, about spending time in in the district where she grew up and, and interviewing as many of her family members as I could and particularly a group of her cousins who, luckily for me, were very open and spoke a great deal. 
You know, a difficulty in, in, in writing about Winnie is that she went out of her way to mythologize her childhood and her lineage. She, she was not a reliable narrator. <laughs> she really wasn't. You know, I think that her view was that her life was private. Her childhood was private and she would spin stories about it to protect herself, really, which I grew to admire. But I did feel like a sleuth because everything I was finding out was contrary to what Winnie herself had said. So it was it, it became a, a little bit of a detective story to discover her real lineage as opposed to the one that she told the world about. And the way you did that was by speaking to family members? Yeah, that was the, the richest, the most fertile source. Um, you know, also there, there are a couple of very good histories of the Impondo nation of that part of the country. And the combination of those secondary sources and talking to a lot of people put things together. You know, the Madikazeli family is a very, very proud family. And that family history is remembered down to the last detail. It, it's a sacred history for, for that family. So in a sense, that made my work easy. It was just arriving and, and getting people to speak about what was very close to their hearts. And what about for Nelson? You know, his lineage is, is much better known. Um, and so there was very little original work to do. I did some scratching around and managed to find some old interviews that I thought were revealing and that hadn't really been exposed. There is right now a live debate going on about exactly where Nelson's father fit into Tembu political power. And I was tempted to join that debate and talk about it, but um, it was a long book about many things, and I thought that I would leave that to others. All right. Now, you know, I love the way you detail how Winnie and Nelson met, and they're somewhat complicated and controversial courtship since he was 17 years older than Winnie and her father did not approve of their marriage. So was this phase of their lives together relatively easy to research and document? Well, no, in the, in the sense that, that, again, they mythologized their courtship. And I think that the real story of their courtship, and this is my view, it may well be contested, only came to light because Nelson went to prison. Because in prison, you know, he was separated from Winnie. He grew more and more in love with Winnie the longer he was separated from her. And how do you hold on to a person who you don't see? You you try and seduce them again. And he tried to seduce her again by reminding her again and again how on the edge their courtship was, how, how close to unacceptable it was, how close to unacceptable she was. Mm-hmm. And that would never have come out if he hadn't have been in prison and hadn't needed to reach out to her and to, to remind her how dangerous their love had been. And I think that's where the real story of their courtship happens. And, you know, the standard story that they tell is that she was 17, 18 years old, young, naive. He was double her age, powerful, famous, and and he swept her off her feet. And to me, that is not credible at all. She was never somebody who was going to be swept off her feet. She was very powerful, even in her teens. And if what Nelson says in his letters to her later is true, she was double-timing him. She was engaged to two men at the same time, and she was playing them off each other. And and for me, that is such a fascinating, revealing story because she was a young woman in the 1950s. She was a very serious woman. She was interested in public life. She wanted to exercise power. But as a woman, there was no way to get there. And she found a way. And part of that way was was how she used her sexuality. It was one of the very few avenues open to her. She was beautiful and charismatic, and she used that with extraordinary skill for somebody her age. So I'm so pleased that Nelson revealed that story because I think that it's, it shows what an extraordinary person she was from very early on. 
Absolutely. And exactly how long were they together as husband and wife before Nelson was arrested and had to serve a life prison sentence? Well, they were married in June 58. And already in 1960, Nelson went underground. So they only really lived together for two years. Mm -hmm. Um, He went to jail in 62, uh, was sentenced to life in 64. Mm -hmm. So between uh, their marriage and him going to jail was four years, but really they lived together for two years. Very, very short time. Very short. So to help you document the evolution of their marriage and their personal growth over time, were you also able to interview some of the major players in their lives, like, say, for instance, Walter Sisulu, his longtime friend, or the Mandela daughters, uh, Zenani and Zenzi? Walter Sisulu had died years earlier. Mm. Um, Fortunately, he left some wonderful interviews, and I I was able to use those. I spoke to some members of the Mandela family. I spoke to two of Winnie's younger sisters. I spoke to many of her cousins. I did not approach her daughters, and and I thought a long time uh, before deciding that. And and the reason is that I'd read and listened to literally everything that they'd said in public over the years. And I didn't think that I was going to get anything more from them. I also, to be honest, got the sense that there was a lot about their parents they didn't know. Um, And there were many other sources that were potentially more valuable to me. I have no idea whether they would have agreed to talk to me, but I'll I'll never find out. During Nelson's long imprisonment, Winnie and Nelson maintained contact with each other through letters. And of course, the letters were heavily monitored. So throughout the book, you do quote from the letters either directly or you paraphrase or summarize. Where are those letters archived and how did you gain access to them? Uh, that's a complicated story. <laughs> um, most of the letters that I quoted are published in the book, The Prison Letters of Nelson Mandela. Um, some of Winnie's letters are held in private collections. Those I didn't quote directly, but I did sometimes paraphrase them. The ones published in the book are incomplete. They're probably about a third of all the letters that he wrote. The rest will be published at some point. At the moment, they're held in two places, in the South African National Archives and by the Nelson Mandela Foundation. But in principle, they're all going to be made available over time. The ones I quoted from are, to my mind, the the most important ones. You know, letters can be very slippery documents. They can lie and deceive. They can send you down blind alleys. But I think a long-term prisoner writing a letter cannot help but reveal himself in very deep ways because he is separated from his life. Mm -hmm. And his access to his life is through his pen. And Mm -hmm. so when he puts pen to paper, he is so needy. He's trying to direct what's in other people's heads, um, what they feel. He's trying to remind people that he loves, that he's still there. And so he really, really reveals his self-conception and his conception of the world through letters. So I found those to be a, a wonderful source. And also, in a way, a very a very gentle source. I think that they they reveal Nelson Mandela in kind and, and quite wonderful ways. Right. How did you get access to the transcripts of the recordings of... Nelson Mandela's conversations with anyone who visited him, including, say, the rather heated exchange between Nelson and his daughter, uh, Zenzi, when he was insisting that she complete her college education. Well, let, let me tell the story from the beginning. The, okay. the, the last uh, Minister of Prisons and Justice in apartheid South Africa was a man called Kwebi Kutsia. And very soon after he took office, he began ordering his staff to bag all of Nelson Mandela's conversations with all of his his visitors and either make transcripts of those conversations or summarize them. When the apartheid 
government left office in 1994, Kirby Kutsir took all that documentation with him. I mean, really, he stole it. So it belonged to the states. But uh, whatever reason, he decided that they'd be better with him. <laughs> um, and they sat in his home in Bloemfontein until his wife died in 2010. And his will said that his papers should go to an archive at the University of the Free State in Bloemfontein, and they did. And that archive did not inform the Mandela family or the Mandela Foundation or the National Archives that they had these documents. They catalogued them and they simply made them an open source. And I discovered that they existed and I got them and read them. So my own thoughts about that are complicated because these were very private discussions between a husband and a wife, um, between a father and a daughter. A lot of what happened between them is raw. Mm. The only reason why I got to see these documents is because these were black prisoners in a white minority regime who had had their freedom taken away and their conversations bugged. You know, the fact that these documents existed were an expression of their oppression, if anything was. The documents were stolen when apartheid ended. They should have been in the National Archive. And so I did feel a weight of responsibility in, in using them. I mean, I used them in the end to be completely honest, because they were there and because I was writing a book about a marriage and I wanted to be as good a book as possible. I also knew that because they were sitting in an open archive, other people were going to read them soon. And I wanted to interpret what was there. I wanted to put out in paper and publish and frame in my own understanding what I thought of those things before um, others did. I wanted to start the conversation, I guess, just because I, I was there and writing this book. And they're they're interesting documents. They're in some ways hard to interpret because both Nelson and Winnie knew that they were being recorded and, and didn't always say what they meant. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes the the emotion of what happened between them took over them and they, they really did say what they meant. And they are quite revelatory documents. Mm. You also indicate that Winnie's letters to her husband were not as readily available as his. So how were you able to pinpoint how her thinking evolved over time? Well, in two ways. One is that quite a few of her letters are available and are very interesting and very illuminating. And the other is the the transcripts of these um, conversations between them. Because for the last eight or 10 years, they seldom corresponded by letter. They corresponded in person. And so the last eight or 10 years of of their relationship while he was behind bars is, is in those documents. And one gets a very good sense of how Winnie is relating to Nelson at the time and in a quite an uncomfortable, awkward way because she's often deceiving him and we know that she's deceiving him because we know what's happening in her life on the outside and he doesn't. So in in an uncomfortable way, he's the odd one out. There's the reader and there's Winnie who knows what's going on and there's Nelson who doesn't always. Wow. You know, and it brings up another point that when you're looking at a subject and their life, you know, there are certain points when the information or the documentation is not there or is not as readily available, and you may have to speculate. So how do you deal with issues of speculation in a biography when you're looking at people as public as Winnie and Nelson Mandela? You know, I think that you have to speculate almost all of the time. I mean, even even a situation dense with facts still requires interpretation. And I think the only way to do it is to say that you're interpreting and to, to write in a way which leaves a reader open to disagree with you, you know, is to explain why you've arrived at your conclusions and continually to press upon the reader that they're provisional conclusions. You know, in a strange way, I think that builds authority. It may sound like a detraction authority to constantly say, well, this may not be right. 
But I think if you lay bare the skeleton of what you're doing uh, and the reader can see how you're constructing what you're doing, I, I think that that leaves them free to believe you or not believe you, but at least they can see how you're arriving at your conclusion. That makes sense. There's a particularly chilling section in your book when you describe how during one of the many times that Winnie was arrested, she was tortured by a particularly cruel jailer named, um, was it Swanapool? Yes. So how did you determine how that man's cruelty and torture affected her? Well, what he did is he kept her awake night and day for five days. She wasn't as ill-treated as her comrades who went with her, who were physically beaten and made to stand and stand in bricks. She was allowed to sit and she wasn't physically touched. But she was tortured nonetheless through sleep deprivation and through a constant flurry of insults and through the fact that she fell ill in the middle of her interrogation and it continued. Right. She believed halfway through her interrogation that she was mortally ill and she feared that she was going to die. And Swanapool was not only unbothered by this, he quite liked it. He he clocked the fact that she thought that she was going to die and fastened onto it and, and played this role where he was egging on her death, asking her to imagine herself as a corpse, essentially. And here's this question of interpretation and suggestion, and I may be right and wrong, or wrong. But I surmise two things. One is that Swanapool could not afford for her to die, to have Nelson Mandela's wife die in jail in those circumstances would be too grave. And I think that Swanapool felt that she was not dying. And the fact that she thought that she was dying was a great insight into her, mm. uh, that she was vulnerable, that she feared illness, that she feared death. And speaking to a couple of her general practitioners or her doctors over the years, Swanapool was right. She was a person who who constantly feared that she was about to get mortally ill. In fact, he was very perceptive. He had a great deal of empathy, but no sympathy. And so essentially what he did is he got her a lawyer and the lawyer got her a doctor, but the lawyer was working for him, not for her. Right. Um, so it was a good cop, bad cop routine where the good cop was pretending to be on her side. But my, in my estimation, it was his recognition of her fear, her fear that she was ill and dying that allowed that gap to open. But you're absolutely right to point out that that is very interpretive. You know, it, it could be wrong. I, I think it's right. You probably didn't have to speculate as much about Nelson Mandela and how he was affected by uh, learning about his wife's affairs with other men while he was in prison. Is that accurate? You know, he'd, he'd say again and again to several people that, that he understood that she was alone indefinitely and that she was not going to be celibate. Mm -hmm. uh, for a while, I didn't take that at face value. I thought maybe that's what he said, but it was more complicated underneath. But I think that is actually how he felt. He thought that it was utterly unreasonable to ask that she be celibate. You know, so in the end, he said, all I ask is that she be loyal to me and come and see me and, and stay my wife. And I just don't ask questions. I don't want to know. And I think that was right. You know, I think that where her sex life troubled him was beginning with a particular lover who ended up being a police informer mm -hmm. um, and who got two men sent to jail. And one of them actually arrived on Robben Island screaming at Nelson Mandela saying, your wife got me in jail because of who she's sleeping with. Mm -hmm. um, and he was mortally offended by that because it was not a sexual betrayal. It was a political betrayal. And my understanding is that he wanted to divorce her and was talked out of it by his mentor and great friend, Walter Sassoon. 
Yeah, they were great friends, a lifelong friend. Really <laughs> so when Nelson was released from prison in February of 1990, there's this famous picture of Winnie and Nelson holding hands, smiling and waving to the crowds of supporters. He would obviously eventually be elected as the first Black president of the country. But before that happened, uh, what was it, a little less than two years after his release, Winnie and Nelson divorced. Of course, there are a myriad of reasons why their marriage didn't survive. But could you identify maybe just one of the key reasons why they didn't make it as a couple once he was released? Well, I think that their relationship was essentially ruined before he was released. You know, she had been 27 years on her own. She had lived a full adult life. She had had lovers. She had been tortured by the police. She had grown politically very, very far apart from Mandela. He had been frozen in time. He was an old-fashioned gentleman from the 1950s. I think that she had nothing in common with him. She had no respect for him, really. She certainly didn't respect his politics. Mm. Um, I don't think she particularly liked him anymore. And I don't blame her for that. It's, it's It's a very complicated situation. And yet, she was politically very serious, very ambitious. And he was the person of the moment. And she felt that if... She was no longer married to him. Her political career would be doomed. And so she was in this incredibly awkward position where her marriage had hollowed out. There was very little left in it, but she needed it. He had a a very different view. He was a prisoner for years and years. He hung on to the life that he had before he was a prisoner. It was all he really had. And, And that was this wife who'd become very jumbled up in his mind. You know, sometimes she was still the the young bride who was barely 20 years old. Uh, You know, sometimes she was a woman entering old age. I think that that the arc of life gets pretty scrambled for a prisoner. But he really, really believed that she was all that he had and that he had to make this work. But it was a fantasy. He couldn't. And a couple of times he tried to use his gathering political power to save his marriage and, and had to learn very quickly that power can't be used for that <laughs> it, it can't mend the marriage and right. so there were these two years of stumbling around unhappily and and him trying to make it work and she trying to make it work it couldn't have worked yeah what was your writing process did you work on the book chapters chronologically did you hold off on writing any chapters until you had completed um, the bulk of your research how did you manage your writing workflow I started writing as soon as I felt I'd done enough research to begin and and then wrote and researched simultaneously uh, for the next couple of years. I don't have a good enough memory to do all the research and then start writing. I will have already forgotten the beginning. <laughs> um, so I, I guess I want to have done about half of the research of a particular section of the book when I start writing. And, and often the writing process itself tells me what research I still need to do. I, I find writing very formative. It's it's not simply putting down what's already there. It, it's very formative. Mm-hmm. How long did you work on this book? I started in earnest working on it full time in early 2018. And I had a draft by the middle of 2021. Then my editor read it and there was still a little more work to do. Okay. Do you have any recommendations for biographers who are currently in the process or thinking about writing a dual biography or exploring the life of internationally famous figures? I'm so bad at answering those questions because I I kind of um, go by feel. I mean, maybe I can just say how this project began. I thought I was going to write a book about Nelson Mandela. You know, I thought that it was only possible once he died to really write about him as a human being and, and that there was a lot to say. 
And quite early on in the research, I discovered how massively in love with his wife he was while he was in prison, but in ways that were just not healthy. It was a prisoner's love. He was in love with a fantasy. And I thought, wow, that's a story. This book is about the marriage. It's not about him. So if there's a lesson in that, it's to be guided by what happens after the research process begins. It's to see what's going on in mid-flow and to, to follow that flow. And, and I guess the other thing that I really felt during the writing process is that these are human beings, but they're also the embodiments of myths and they're important myths. They're important to a lot of people. And the question of how to write about them as real human beings with flaws, but at the same time truly respect them, and also truly respect the myths that they embody and, and the people who live by those myths, how to get all of that right at the same time. I mean, I thought that was the big challenge. That was award-winning author Johnny Steinberg talking with me about his latest book, Winnie and Nelson Mandela, Portrait of a Marriage. It was published in May 2023 by Knopf. This interview was recorded via Zoom on May 10th of this year. To learn more about Bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a wonderful day.